Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're talking about the Robert W. Chambers story, The Repairer of Reputations, which was originally published in his book, The King in Yellow, in 1895. This is a big story. It's like 35 pages long. So it's going to take us two episodes to get through this story. The first episode we'll do is a recap episode where I'll go through the story in some detail and Glenn will draw our attention to important elements that we'll need to keep track of when we get to our discussion episode, which will follow the recap episode. The King in Yellow is an absolutely brilliant collection of stories. It's set in this weird alternate future. Uh, we're going to get a heavy dose of that here in this story. The Repair of Reputations is the first story in the book. It's also one of my favorites, so I've been looking forward to covering this one. But on the note of looking forward, we are rapidly approaching the end of the batch of stories that you and I selected to begin this podcast. Uh, but once we cover Lovecraft's story, The Statement of Randolph Carter, which is coming up in just a few episodes, the decision about what we're going to cover next is going to be left to our supporters on Patreon. Patreon is the place online where you can go and support work of artists and musicians and novelists you love, and we'd really love and benefit from your financial support of our project. The way things are going to work here for Elder Sign is that every other month, we'll conduct a poll of our supporters to select the, the next batch of stories. And this first vote is going to happen this week. The polls will be open between April 12th and April 19th. And look, we know that that's a, a really quick turnaround, but we'll have another vote in two months. Uh, and really, it might actually be fun to see what our current supporters, who are mostly Star Trek and Gene Wolfe fans, uh, it might be fun to see what they want us to cover here on the Weird Fiction Show. And I have to tell you, we've got some great stories on the ballot this time. There's some Lovecraft and Howard, uh, but there's also stories by Jeff Vandermeer, Ray Bradbury, and Robert Aikman. Uh, it's, it's really a stacked full of good stories. You'll not only be able to vote, there are a lot of other benefits. We've recorded so many bonus episodes, and a lot of these are stories that are often overlooked. In the mainstream, we did a great story uh, by Claire Winger Harris, The Fate of the Poseidonia. We did the Lovecraft story, Dagon. We even did a Buffy episode. There's a Gilmore Girls episode covered on there. We've done a lot to cover other things we love in pop culture besides just genre fiction. And we release a new bonus episode on Patreon every month. So sign up now. You get access to the whole back catalog, which is over two dozen episodes. And then you'll get access to the new episodes that we do every month. All right. So you get to vote on what we cover and you get at least one bonus episode each month. But you'll also be helping us reach a number of crowdfunding goals that we have. Now, the most exciting of these is to release episodes of Elder Sign every week instead of every other week. But uh, the next goal that we're working on right now is to do online video channels chats with listeners whenever our shows finish covering something really significant. And for Star Trek, right, that's uh, when we get to a season break. For Gene Wolfe, that's whenever we finish a novel. And here on Elder Sign, we're going to do this whenever we finish one of H.P. Lovecraft's major works. So think Call of Cthulhu, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, uh, The Dunnage Horror, uh, really any of the, the major novellas. So head over to patreon.com slash Media and check us out. We're immensely grateful for the support, and we are really excited to see which stories win and, and really to get into the heart of what Elder Sign is going to be all about. But with that business out of the way, Brandon, I think it is time to get into the recap of this big story that is going to take us a lot of time to cover. Well, The King in Yellow opens with a song from the play 
The King in Yellow, which is going to feature prominently in the Repair of Reputations and the rest of the collection, The King in Yellow, as well. So I'm going to read this epigram uh, to get us going here. Along the shore, the cloud waves break. The twin suns sink behind the lake. The shadows lengthen in Carcosa. Strange is the night where black stars rise and strange moons circle through the skies, but stranger still is lost Carcosa. Songs that the Hyades shall sing, where flap the tatters of the king, must die unheard in dim Carcosa. Song of my soul, my voice is dead. Die, though unsung as tears unshed, shall dry and die in lost Carcosa. This is Casilda's song, and it opens the whole collection. This poem predates it by decades, but hearing you read that aloud, Brandon, it just sounded a lot like the the ring poem from the Lord of the Rings, uh, uh, in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. It had the, so the same cadence and some of the same imagery. Uh, really fantastic. I love Casilda's song. This introduces us to the the play, The King in Yellow. It also introduces us to this place called Carcosa. And here in this poem, it's another planet, or or at least it's a place on another planet that orbits uh, a binary star system. Uh, This planet itself is orbited by several moons. And from this place, the stars appear black or or maybe even are black, depending on what we think is actually going on here. Uh, These details about Carcosa are Chambers's invention, but the name Carcosa itself is not. And this actually comes from uh, an 1886 story by Ambrose Bierce called An Inhabitant of Carcosa, where it is a a lost and ruined city. We'll end up covering that story someday if our patrons vote for it. I want to talk a little bit about the names in this song. They're they're not really going to end up being immediately relevant to the story that we're about to get, uh, but ultimately they will be. And I think that they're really interesting. And I I just really want to talk about the the Hyades, who here are mentioned as singers. Most people are familiar with the Hyades as a star cluster seen from Earth. But like most such clusters, the the name derives from some nymphs in Greek mythology, a a bunch of nymphs. Uh, People know the Pleiades probably. the most. Uh, in this case, though, the, the Hyades are uh, the sisters of Hyas, who was a renowned hunter who died in a, a hunting accident, as so many Greek heroes do. Turns out hunting is difficult business. Uh, the Hyades sing and weep for him, and because of their weeping, they're associated with rain. And so the songs that they sing here in this poem are songs of grief. And we see tears and singing as the central motif of the last two stanzas of this poem. But the singing and the weeping are unheard by anyone else, and the tears are unshed, uh, and and so on. And, And so it seems like Chambers here is setting up desperate and lonely grief as the central theme of the whole book. And it'll be really fun to see how that stands up as we get more of the stories from this collection over the the years that we're doing this podcast. I love the way you set up the themes. I think we're going to see desperate and lonely grief even as a theme in The Repair of Reputations. And we're still not done getting the themes of this story set up. In fact, we've got a, a, a second epigram, one that is just for this story. The story opens with uh, another epigram, an epigram in French that says, more or less, uh, don't mock madmen because their madness lasts longer than ours. But 
that is the only difference between them and us. Uh, and these lines uh, come from a book about hunting. <laughs> so more hunting imagery here. It's a book about hunting in, in France that was published in the 1850s by uh, a French aristocrat named Adolphe Dotido. Uh, great French name. I'm thinking about naming a, a D&D character this. And we're going we're gonna to see shortly that French culture and also the veneration of the French aristocracy is going to be a central part of this story. Uh, And of course, we're also going to get more than a little about madness. Well, now that we've got the epigrams out of the way, we can get to the the real story. It begins near the end of the year 1920. And and for Robert W. Chambers and his contemporary readers, this would be a signal that the story takes place about 25 years in the future. And a lot has changed in America in those intervening years. We learn that the U.S. is tranquil. The tariff and labor questions have been satisfied. Germany has attempted to evade North America, but has failed. And as a result of this, the country has done an excellent job of bulking up its defenses, particularly along the coasts. Furthermore, the size of the standing army has been increased by about 300,000 men, and an academy has been set up in order to train diplomats, which saves the U.S. from their reliance on, quote, incompetent patriots who are our representatives abroad. The country is also prosperous. Chicago has been rebuilt once again after a second great fire has brought it to ruins. And now there is a beautiful white imperial city in its place, a city far more beautiful than what was built for the world's fair. In the rest of the nation, good architecture is replacing bad architecture, and the population has begun to crave decency. Infrastructure is being improved, and there's government-created subsidies for the theater and the opera, and a system of mounted police has been deployed to national parks and forests and have made those places much safer, it seems, as well. Also, the U.S. has been able to expel the Jewish population, create a Negro state, and increase new enforceable laws regarding immigration and naturalization. This is absolutely crazy. This front-loaded with all these great changes, and then right at the end, there's like this turn of this screw that's like, this is also a part of these great improvements to America. Yeah, this is tough to to read now, uh, 130 years later. And as you can imagine... As a historian, I want to go through all of this world building uh, line by line, but I'm going to save that for the discussion so that we can get into the promised madness and murder here as quickly as possible. As you say, Brandon, this is 25 years in the future for Chambers, and I just want us to really grasp what that means. This would be like us opening up a book today and getting a story set in 2045, right? Just so we can all really kind of empathize with what a contemporary reader would uh, would be thinking and feeling uh, on these opening lines. And really the point of all this world building here is that despite the problems of the early 1890s, this near future is going to be pretty great. And Chambers really goes through and he ticks all of the boxes, all of the things that were on people's minds in the 1890s, even architecture and city planning, uh, to show us that everything is going to be awesome. Awesome. Though I think, as you do as well, Brandon, there is more going on in this opening. We will get to that in the discussion. But I think for now, what's probably the most important for for the story to to follow along with the recap 
is that the United States has become heavily militarized, and it has also adopted a lot of nationalistic language uh, and also nationalistic policies, which is what we see happening at the end of this world building section. Right. We learned that power has been centralized in the government and that, quote, the problem of the Indians has been solved. Uh, A few more changes have taken place. A Congress of Religion has been convened and all bigotry and intolerance has been put aside. This is like John Lennon's song, Imagine. And all in all, you might say things were going really well for the U.S., although Russia has been able to conquer almost all of Europe. So the rest of the world, maybe not so much. Yeah, but that's on the other side of the ocean. So that's all right. Yeah. How's it ever going to affect us? Our narrator also tells us that after a long and arduous legal process, suicide has finally become legal, and it's even supported by the U.S. government. In New York, in April of 1920, the first government lethal chamber is opened on Washington Square. Our narrator, whose name is revealed to us as Mr. Castine, though it's Hildred, and that's how I'll be referring to him as throughout most of this recap— Hildred was there to witness the opening of the first lethal chamber. He was visiting his doctor, Dr. Archer, for what appears to be a kind of final checkup. Four years ago, Hildred had been thrown from his horse and received head injuries that affected his brain. Dr. Archer has been holding Hildred in his private asylum, where Hildred has been treated for insanity. But once Dr. Archer decided that Hildred was well, he let him go on his way. And at this point, Hildred smiles and tells Dr. Archer that he would get even with the doctor for his mistake of declaring Hildred insane. Yeah, this story is nuts. Uh, this this opening, anyway, is, is kind of a, a bizarre way to begin a short story. We're a full two pages into it before we even realize that it's a first-person account, that it's even about a character at all. Uh, Hildred introduces us to the question of, what is madness and who is mad that the epigram has already raised. And from his perspective, right, he was just a dandy with inherited wealth uh, and really was of no value to society, save for his ability to, uh, you know, drive the economy through uh, conspicuous consumption and suffering this head injury from uh, falling from his horse is really what changed him and and made him a better person, made him uh, energetic and ambitious, as he says. But from the perspective of his family and from the perspective of his doctor, this injury's caused real damage to his brain, and it's made him insane in the language of the story. Which perspective is correct is going to be the central question of this story. And we can see even here in this description that uh, we aren't going to be presented with an objective third person narrative. Rather, the story is going to come from this narrator's subjective and completely unreliable perspective. And he has this line about how somebody had mercifully sent a bullet through his horse's head while he was unconscious following his fall. Uh, But Phrasing the line this way suggests to me that he himself may have been the one to shoot the horse, but that he doesn't remember this act of violence that he committed before he became unconscious. And we're going to see other things like this as the story progresses. I'm really glad you brought up that line about about somebody putting the horse out of its misery as an act of mercy. That is, I think, a kind of uh, a crucial 
line in understanding also the world of this story, the world that this takes place in is this horse could have been hobbled. Who knows how he got thrown from the horse? There's two possibilities. One, it was an accident and the horse was gravely injured and killing the horse was an act of mercy. The other option is he was thrown from the horse because the horse was acting up and he, in his madness, kills the horse. So that's kind of immediately on the table in terms of what is really happening in the background. Right. It would be it would be taking vengeance on the horse. And in this same paragraph, we get him talking about taking vengeance on people who have wronged him. As you said, Glenn, in Hildred's mind, the fall of the fall from the horse has done him no harm. In fact, it has done him good. And as you alluded to, he's gone from being a lazy young man to an active, energetic and ambitious man. But there is something that troubles Hildred. While he was convalescing, he purchased and read a play called The King in Yellow. It's a disturbing play, but after reading the first act, Hildred felt that he should stop reading it all together. He throws his book in the fireplace, but the book strikes the gate that stops like the logs from falling out and just falls open on the hearth, uh, which I think is a really funny image. And he sees the book now reflected in the firelight. And he sees the opening words of the second act and is immediately pulled back into the play. So he creeps up to his room to read it, which he does, and not just once. But it's not the reading of the play that troubles him in particular. He can't get out of his head the image of Carcosa, where black stars hang in the heavens, where the shadows of men's thoughts lengthen in the afternoon, when the twin suns sink into the lake of Holly, and his mind will bear forever the memory of the pallid mask. Hildred wishes the writer could be cursed, the writer who made such an incredible masterpiece and revealed the truth to the world, that they are all in service to the king in yellow. This business with throwing the book in the fire and then being unable to watch it burn, being compelled to rescue it from the fire, uh, is also paralleled in The Lord of the Rings when Frodo throws the ring in the fire so that Gandalf can can prove that it is, in fact, the one ring of Sauron. Uh, some really interesting parallels between these two stories here so far. At this point, we, we get our introduction to the function of the play, The King in Yellow, the function that it's going to serve uh, in this book and, and also just in this story that we're covering today. And somehow this act of reading the play or the act of seeing it performed has the potential to drive you to madness, although no one can quite pinpoint why. And Hildred even tells us that the, the first act of the play is banal and innocent, but yet that is even enough to, to drive some people to insanity. Uh, it's a really cool idea, really cool weird fiction idea. Yeah, I love it. And even in world, as you said, the book, The King in Yellow, really has caused quite a stir. It's been denounced by the government and religious leaders alike. And even the most advanced literary anarchists want nothing to do with it. And this is because the truths it reveals about the world and the king in yellow are too much to bear. It's wonderful. It's, it's just so much fun. But now we're back on the 13th of April, and this is the day that the government lethal chamber is opening. The government has basically requisitioned a block, a city block, 
that had formerly been places where immigrants might gather and run small businesses. The block was full of French and Italian cafes and other shabby buildings, we're told. But the Lethal Chamber is a grand, majestic building. Its grounds span the whole block and are enclosed by a gilded iron railing. And the interior grounds include a garden with lawns, flowers, and fountains. In the middle of this converted block stands a white, classical-looking building with six ionic columns and a single door of bronze. A marble statue of the fates guards the door. This description of the government lethal chamber and its construction, I think, is really awesome. And it, it sets the stage for the action of this story, all of which is going to take place nearby. So this this euthanasia clinic has been built on the south side of Washington Square Park in Manhattan, uh, one of the real great public spaces in New York City. And in fact, a lot of this story is about what New York City is like in the 1890s. And if you live in New York or you visited there, uh, I think it has a particular resonance for you. But when Chambers was writing this story, the iconic arch monument of Washington Square Park had only just been constructed. And in fact, this whole location was undergoing a lot of change. And so here, Chambers is envisioning how that all might turn out. And the description of its location puts it basically where the NYU Law School and the main NYU library are today. This is an area where I personally have spent a bunch of time, in part because our Clay Temple colleague, uh, Valerie, our, my co-host on Lower Decks, did her PhD at NYU. So I've spent some time in this area. And I just want to emphasize something you pointed out, Brandon, which is that in describing the appropriation of this area, Chambers tells us that these previous buildings, these shabby cafes for foreigners, and specifically Italians and Frenchmen, is a real emphasis here on foreignness equating to badness. And building this euthanasia clinic here is a way of cleaning up the city of some of its shady elements. Uh, there's also some weird cultural appropriation happening here that may stand in contrast to the, the nationalist sentiment about the cafes. The The building itself, as you say, is a neoclassical building in, in, it, in terms of its style, and it even has a sculpture of the Greek goddesses, the fates. Uh, these are the, the three women who operate a loom on which they, they weave our lives and like snip our thread when our lives are up. Uh, presumably, that's what they're doing here in this sculpture. And we're told that this sculpture is the work of the artist Boris Yvain, an American sculptor with a distinctly non-Anglo name. Uh, Boris is a, a Slavic name, very popular in Eastern Europe. It basically means wolf. While Yvain is the, the French version of a Welsh name that belongs to a character in Welsh mythology who then is later appropriated into the Arthurian mythos as one of the knights of the round table. And we're told that he died in Paris as well. And so this figure, this this character, and even the, the, the sculpture that he makes, I think serve to show that even as there seems to be some ideological movement about defining American culture as Anglo culture, uh, at least one significant cultural producer is about as non-Anglo as you can get for the 1890s. So there's some tension here that Chambers is building uh, into his story that is easily overlooked by us today, but would have jumped out to his contemporary audience. One thing that's happening here is you're seeing America choose its cultural myths and heritage that it wants to be a part of. The classical, neoclassical 
heritage is still very important. We want to be descended from the rational thinkers, the people who invented democracy, and not be bothered by all of these foreign immigrants who are coming in, whose heritage and cultural stories about themselves might not include the importance of the Greek influence of the philosophers in the city-state and things like that. It's, it's an excellent point. The governor of New York is present to lead the opening ceremonies here of the Lethal Chamber. There are many other high-ranking officials also in attendance. And here, Hildred notes the final words that he hears of the governor's speech. And I, I want to read them because this Lethal Chamber is really a major symbol in this story. This is what the governor says. The laws prohibiting suicide and providing punishment for any attempt at self-destruction have been repealed. The government has seen fit to acknowledge the right of man to end an existence which may have become intolerable to him through physical suffering or mental despair. It is believed that the community will be benefited by the removal of such people from their midst. Since the passage of this law, the number of suicides in the United States has not increased. Now the government has determined to establish a lethal chamber in every city, town, and village in the country. It remains to be seen whether or not that class of human creatures from whose desponding ranks new victims of self-destruction fall daily will accept the relief thus provided. There a painless death awaits him who can no longer bear the sorrows of his life. If death is welcome, let him seek it there. Citizens of New York and of the United States of America, through me, the government declares the lethal chamber to be open. This is a mad, mad speech. It's crazy. It's absolutely bonkers. Every village in the United States needs a euthanasia clinic. What is going on here that that so many people are choosing to opt out of life and that the government wants to make that process as easy and painless for them as possible rather than to set up, say, mental health clinics or something like that? It is taken here in the delivery of this speech as an object of national and nationalistic pride that the United States is making this move. We're going to talk a lot more about what's going on there and how it fits in with the themes of the story in the discussion, but it should strike any reader as uncomfortable and perhaps a a bad idea. It is not meant to be something that we should be cheering for here in the story. One thing I love that Chambers picks up on in this speech is the way a lot of government policies are sold to us. Legalizing this or that or doing this doesn't actually change what's already happening. Everything is remaining the same. We're just recognizing it. So this isn't a bad thing. Instead, all it does is reveal that their aims are totally out of alignment with any idea of the good. It's really funny. I think Chambers does an incredible job with this with this speech. And I, I love the inauguration ceremony itself. The description of this is fantastic. There, there are a number of real cool things going on here. One, the, the mayor of New York is actually the mayor of New York and Brooklyn, which is to say that Chambers has predicted the merger of Brooklyn and Manhattan into a single city, which doesn't actually happen in the real world for a few more years. 
But he he also envisions here a heavily militarized New York City. Uh, The city has a garrison. It has two resident generals. There is also a commandant of the troops of the state of New York who is here at this ceremony. And there's even an admiral of the fleet that is kept in the Hudson River. There's a fleet of warships that just hang out around New York City. That's unimaginable to me. And All of these people are assembled here for this ceremony, along with a squadron of hussars and a regiment of lancers, all of what for amounts to like the opening of a of a clinic of of some sort. Uh, That's crazy. You need thousands of soldiers and all this top military brass for for this. I mean, you wouldn't. This is like imagining a, a new library branch being opened, and you need you know the the the, the joint chiefs of staff there for that ceremony. Uh, that is bonkers. And there's one more thing I, I, I want to note about who is at this ceremony. All of the people at this ceremony have properly English names that they are as Anglo as you can get. These are names like Livingston, General Blunt, Major General Hamilton, Admiral Buffby, uh, General Lansford. uh, There's someone named Franklin and on and on. All completely English names. And that's a real part of the, the nationalism theme of this story. Well, upon the conclusion of the remarks, Hildred continues on his walk. Again, he's leaving his doctor's office, who has declared him sane. Hildred continues on to Bleecker Street and stops in to a small shop run by Hauberk, who is an armorer. Hauberk emphatically invites Hildred in, and his daughter, Constant, rises to greet Hildred as well. But Hildred notices Constance's disappointment when she sees that it is himself, Hildred Costine, and not his cousin, Louis, who she is in love with. I love that the armorer's name is Hauberk, which is actually a type of armor. This is like naming your carpenter character Mike Hammer or Steve Dresser or something like that. Uh, But more important here uh, is that all of the names that are introduced in this section, Hauberk, Constance, Castain, Louis, these are all French names, even though our narrator seemingly is a member of the elite in this new nationalist America. We've just left this ceremony where everyone in top positions of power has an Anglo name. There are no French names, even Anglo-French names represented there at all. Here, everyone has a French name. Hildred enjoys watching Hauberk work on the armor, but the thing that really holds his attention is his obsession with Hallberg's daughter, Constance. Hildred is a little upset that she loves Louis and not himself, but he knows that all will be well because he has an arrangement for their future, Hallberg and Louis and Constance, just as he has one for Dr. Archer. Hildred stays and continues to watch them both work, as he has done many times in the past. He spent many hours watching them work. Hildred asks Hauberk what he is working on, and Hauberk says that he's working on a restoration of a grieve for a private collector who had the full suit except for the grieve, which was found in Paris. This is like a mini detective story that's in here. Hildred asks Hauberk what his ambitions are. Does he want riches? No. Hauberk only wishes to be the best armorer in the world. Constance jumps in here and asks Hildred if he saw the event at the lethal chamber, and if he had seen his cousin there as well. Hildred tells her that his cousin's regiment was not part of the ceremony at the lethal chamber. Rather, 
His cousin and his regiment are practicing maneuvers in Westchester County. Hauberk chimes in and asks if Hildred is headed upstairs to visit the old lunatic again. Hildred laughs, but he hates the word lunatic. And he is indeed going to visit the man upstairs, whose name we learn is Mr. Wild. Constance commends Hildred for his compassionate visits to a man who has lived alone for so long and is nearly demented. Halbrook has a different opinion, though, of Mr. Wilde. He finds Mr. Wilde to be a vicious man. And Hildred comes to the defense of Mr. Wilde. He calls Wilde's mind a wonder chamber. Wilde has a secret knowledge of history and is able to find anything that he searches for. Halbrook thinks that this proclamation is absolute nonsense. But to prove that Mr. Wilde is the real deal, Hildred gives Halbrook a little nugget of information regarding the location of the missing tacits and cussards of an enameled suit of armor called the Prince's Emblazoned. Hearing this information shocks Hauberk, who now only doubles down on his claims of all of this being absolute nonsense. So Hildred continues, Mr. Wilde also claims that Hauberk is none other than the Marquis of Avonshire. Here, as he's about to tell us what Constance is, Hildred recognizes terror in Constance's face, and she gets up, and Hildred stops his stream of revelations. Hauberk says that Mr. Wilde is definitely wrong about the identity of himself being the Marquis of Avonshire, though he may be right about the armor. The Marquis of Avonshire killed his wife's traducer, which is a word for a person who destroys the reputations of others, and then fled to Australia where he died. Constance reiterates what her father said, that Mr. Wilde is wrong. Hildred, not wanting to push the matter any further, acquiesces to their claims and says that in this circumstance, they can agree that Mr. Wilde is wrong. And this is the end of the first chapter of three in the repair of reputations. This business about the Marquis of Aventure is really awesome. So it's all wrapped up here with winks and nods, all of the context clues, though they're all subjectively filtered through the perspective of Hildred and may not be objectively true, but all of the context clues here indicate to us, the, the readers, that that Hauberk really is the Marquis of Avonshire, but he's in hiding because he's a, a criminal of some sort. He's, so Hauberk is this assumed identity. And now his fate and the fate of his daughter is in the power of Hildred Castain because he knows who they really are. And the implication here, right, is that Hauberk as as the Marquis of Avonshire is uh, an English lord. And this is all really presented to us as a way of demonstrating that Mr. Wilde, who we're, we're about to meet, possesses secret knowledge and that we should trust him. But everything about this is made up. Uh, Avonshire isn't a real place. Uh, even allowing for the speculative setting of this world, it's a highly suspicious name because it is a pun, just as Hauberk is a, a pun. Uh, Shire, of course, is just a way of saying country or area or region, while uh, Avon or Avon is just the Celtic word for river. And so this is as generic a place name as you can get. It's riverland or area around the river. So this is one of these places where 
it's not clear whether anything that we are observing from the narrator's perspective is true at all. And it's quite possible that this whole conversation is playing out differently from the perspective of Constance and her father. And I love the way that Chambers does this. It's absolutely brilliant and absolutely just well crafted. And as you said, Brandon, at the start of this scene, there is also this element of romance here. Uh, There's not maybe a a love triangle, but some kind of love shape is happening here where Hildred is super into Constance, but Constance is into Hildred's cousin, Louis. And this is not going to turn out well. Just to be clear, this is not a rom-com. It is absolute madness. I mean, we get the sense that Hildred just sits outside of this shop for hours and hours and watches them work on armor. It's very, very creepy. And you're right to point out, Glenn, here that this name, Avonshire, is preposterous in some ways. But Hauberk seems to know of the story of the Marquis of Avonshire. And that makes everything more confusing as we're getting deeper into the story. Chapter 2 picks up with Hildred climbing up the stairs to Mr. Wilde's apartment. After Hildred enters, Mr. Wilde double locks the door and pushes a heavy chest against it. They're about to do something in secret. Mr. Wilde, though, is covered in scratches, and his artificial ears have been displaced. His left hand lacks fingers. He is very short, though he is very muscular, and his head is flat and pointed, even though he has an exceptional mind. In part because of his looks, these looks I just described, people think Mr. Wilde is insane, but Hildred claims that Wilde is just as sane as himself. Though Hildred can admit that Wilde is an eccentric figure, namely he keeps this cat around that he tortures, basically, and the cat is always attacking Mr. Wilde. That's the that's why he has these scratches. At this point, after locking the door, Mr. Wilde climbs into his chair and picks up a ledger and reads from it. He tells of Henry B. Matthews, P. Green Dusenberry, and Mrs. C. Hamilton Chester, all of whom have experienced damaged reputations and have enlisted Mr. Wilde to help them repair the reputations. Mr. Wilde is paid handsomely to do his work. And here, Mr. Wilde boasts to Hildred, who was skeptical of the profitability of of becoming a repairer of reputations. Mr. Wilde boasts that he now has 500 men in his employ at every level of society, and that he has no trouble getting more men to work for him should the need arise. Hildred suggests that that these men may one day turn on Wilde. Wilde doesn't think they will, because they like their wages, and they don't want to experience Wilde applying the whip. Just then, a knock comes to the door. Wilde asks who it is. It's Arnold Stalet, the owner and editor-in-chief of the New York Daily, also a person in Mr. Wilde's employ. Mr. Wilde is quite a character. He is physically grotesque in just about every way imaginable. I mean, really ticks all of the, the grotesque boxes. And he also has this cat, as you say, that is constantly trying to maul him, uh, maybe even actually try to kill him. It, it comes in the room and it, it snarls at him and has, makes all these menacing faces. And... Mr. Wilde has this real unusual business as a repairer of reputations, which seems maybe to be something of like a reverse blackmailer or something like that. It's an absurd notion. 
and and although Wilde tells us that he has employees and he keeps a ledger, we don't really get anything here about how this business actually works, what it is he actually does to repair anyone's reputation. And so I, I think it's fair right now to suspect that he may be delusional in the same way that we're worried that our narrator might be as well. And Chambers goes to some pain to draw equivalencies between their mental states multiple times throughout the story, which makes us have to get to the point of saying, if we think they're both, if we think one of them is seen, they're both seen. If we think one of them is insane, they're both insane. And this business about uh, Stalette coming to the door is odd. It may or may not be the person we think it is, the owner and editor-in-chief of the New York Daily Newspaper. Right, because we don't actually see him. There's a knock on the door, and then there's a shouted conversation through the closed door. So we don't ever actually meet this person. It's not even necessarily clear to us that Mr. Wilde actually thinks that's who was at the door. He may have been making that up. This is an, an important, uh, powerful person in society. This position is. And so Mr. Wilde may have been making up that that's who it was in order to pr- to, to impress Hildred Castain. None of that is clear to us. And it's also not clear to us, you know, even if we are, are leaning on the side right now, maybe that that each of them is delusional. It's not clear if each of them is in their own delusion or if they are sharing a delusion here as well, which is an important part of the story, as especially as we get into Act 3. Well, at this point, we do find out that they are working on something together, or they've uncovered something together. Hildred asks Wilde about the notes to a manuscript that they are working on, or that's been uncovered. It's a little unclear to me what the origin of this manuscript is. And Hildred picks up the bundles of papers, which are entitled The Imperial Dynasty of America. Hildred reads from it, even though he knows it by heart. He reads the following. When from Carcosa, the Hyades, Haster, and Aldebaran, to Castain, Louis de Calvados, born December 19th, 1877. And he reads aloud his own name, Hildred de Calvados, the only son of Hildred Castain and Edith Landis Castain, first in succession. At this point, Wilde asks, apropos of legitimate ambition, how Constance and Louis get along. Hildred remarks that she loves him. Wilde remarks on the unfinished business between Hildred and Dr. Archer, then goes on to talk about the number of men they have in reserves and their readiness to rise up and retake the country. But Wilde will not send the yellow sign to California or the Northwest. And Hildred's only reply is, a new broom sweeps clean. And Wilde's reply to this remark, a new broom sweeps clean, is the ambition of Caesar and Napoleon pales before that, which could not rest until it had seized the minds of men and controlled even their unborn thoughts. They are speaking now of the king in yellow, whom emperors have served and whom Hildred is content to serve. Yeah, I want to parse out some of the, the speculative setup here. So this is where we, we get Hildred's full name, as you say, Hildred Castain de Calvados. Calvados is a real place. It's a, it's a region within Normandy. If Americans know this word, it's because this is a really good type of apple brandy. It's uh, the central ingredient in the Widow's Kiss cocktail, one of the finest inventions of humanity. And 
I don't know that this is meant to be funny here, but there is a sense in which his name is Hildred Castain de Apple Brandy. So that might be meant to be something that's funny to us, a kind of a pun, the way that Avonshire and Hauberk are also puns, though I'm not clear on that. I'm not sold on that. Uh, but what matters right now is that Hildred thinks that he is some kind of secret royalty from Carcosa, from this this place on some other planet where the stars are black and there's a binary sun system. Uh, that all of which is found in this play, The King in Yellow, which we know that he he read while he was convalescing from his stay in the asylum. And he has plans to implant his family in their rightful role as the monarchs of the United States and potentially eventually as the entire uh, as the rulers of the entire planet. And Mr. Wilde is helping him. In fact, he seems to be doing all of the actual work of beginning a popular uprising, a popular revolution that's going to overthrow the democracy of the United States and install the Castains as the, the authoritative uh, monarchs. But it's clear here that the, the real source of their power comes from the king in yellow and, and through maybe some kind of mystical power of something that is called here the yellow sign. All of this, the king in yellow, the yellow sign, all seems to be associated with Carcosa, though those dots aren't completely connected here. And the other thing that really matters here is that it's not Hildred who's the rightful monarch of America. It's Louis, but Hildred wants to be the rightful monarch. And so they're going to have to get rid of Louis for that to happen. And of course, this is really convenient because Hildred already doesn't like Louis because Louis is the person that Constance prefers and Hildred wants Constance. We're going to see a little more wordplay in this story with Brandy a little bit later on, uh, which I'm glad you brought that up because I think it is a bit of a joke, as we'll see later, and maybe can give us a way into interpreting just what kind of mental state, what kind of, uh, what sort of consciousness Hildred is actually having, given his last name. It's at this point in the story, though, that Louis's regiment returns from Westchester, and they're doing like a little military parade on the way back to their barracks, and his regiment passes by the window in Mr. Wilde's apartment. Louis turns and looks, but not at Hildred, his cousin. Rather, Louis is looking at Constance in Hobrick's shop. It is now time, Wilde and Hildred agree, for Hildred to go see Louis. Hildred returns to his rooms, and he eats some lunch, and he reads the paper. And after all this, he goes to the steel safe in his bedroom. He sets the time combination and waits for the lock to open. Waiting for the safe to open is one of Hildred's favorite things. He anticipates with joy the knowledge of the contents of the safe, which is something that is just his, that it keeps secure for him. When the safe opens, Hildred pulls from it a crown with a diadem of pure gold blazing with diamonds. And this is a ritual Hildred performs every day. This diadem is fit for a king. And while the king in yellow might scorn it, his royal servant, Hildred, will wear it when he rules. Hildred gazes out his window where he can see the lethal chamber. And just as he turns away, He catches a commotion around a gate that attracts his attention. A young man had entered through the gates. He takes a moment to gaze at the fate's sculpture, puts his hands in his face, and 
runs through the bronze door. This description of the this first person to enter the lethal chamber is 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 gorgeous. It's it's actually really pretty sim- cinematic. In fact, I think it's it's uh, it's screaming for John Woo to direct the film adaptation. I, I just want to read what the the sentence is here that Chambers writes because I I think it's really gorgeous. He paused a moment before the fates, and as he raised his head to those three mysterious faces, the pigeon rose from its sculptured perch circled about for a few moments and flew to the east. Uh, That's the John Woo part. I I just really love this imagery here. That really draws me into what's going on. But I think what actually matters for the story here is that this event, this person, this first person going into this euthanasia clinic, this happens right before we're going to actually finally meet uh, cousin Louis Castain, who's already been a presence in the story. And so I think that that's a real ominous uh, parallel here that this is this is what we get just before this character really walks on stage so to speak as you see glenn we are just about to meet louis hildred puts on his hat and goes outside they run into one another and louis asks hildred the news hildred says there's no news he did though see louis regiment return from from the vantage point of mr wilde's window and Lou here flips out a little bit because he does not want Hildred spending time with Mr. Wilde, who is a madman. But as Louis sees Hildred's response to his critique of Mr. Wilde, he backs down a little bit. And this is especially because Hildred makes a point of noting that he himself was once mistaken for being mad, even though he never was. In any event, Louis is looking for an excuse to break away from the regiment in order to go to Hauberk's. So he uses Hildred as an excuse. They arrive at the shop, and Hauberk and Constance are just about to set out on a walk. Hildred tries to get out of the walk, but they insist that he go along with them. They walk along the wharves of the North River, which is a project that had been completed around 1917. I just want to point out another world-building thing that Chambers is doing here. There is no such thing as the North River. That's the old Dutch name for what we now call the Hudson River. The uh, old Dutch name for the Delaware River in Philadelphia was the the South River. So this is an element that Chambers has uh, glommed onto here in order to to set this world uh, apart from the, the real world in which he was writing it. So just if you're keeping track of the geography of New York and where they are, They are still in southern Manhattan at this point. Louis and Constance walk together and murmur to one another. Hildred refuses a cigar from Hauberk, but continues to walk along with the pack amiably. They all look out on the water, on the naval fleet, and Louis spends some time describing the boats out on the water. Hauberk lets Hildred know that Mr. Wilde was right about the pieces of the princes emblazoned. Hallbrook found it right where Mr. Wilde said it would be. And he wants to give Mr. Wilde credit for the discovery. It's a huge discovery. Hildred says that Mr. Wilde does not want credit. He does, doesn't want anything. He doesn't want money. He doesn't want notoriety. He just wanted Hallbrook, in a sense, to find this these uh, pieces of the armor. Hallbrook, though, thinks that he can get $2,000 because of this discovery. And really, some of it does belong to Mr. Wilde. And Hildred refuses any compensation on behalf of Mr. Wilde. Hildred then loses himself in his own mind a little bit. And he begins to ask, what is the value of money? When, when, when what? Demands Hauberk. 
Hildred only says, you will see. Hobrick gives Hildred a look that Hildred is familiar with. It's the look he used to get from Dr. Archer. And Hobrick, though, says nothing to accompany the look. Hildred knows what Hobrick is thinking, though, and he responds to the unspoken thought. Hildred tells Hobrick that he is, in fact, not mentally weak, and that his mind is as healthy as Mr. Wilde's. It's just that Hildred and Mr. Wilde have discovered an investment that will pay more than mere gold, silver, and precious stones. It's an investment that will secure the happiness and prosperity of a continent. Yes, a hemisphere, and eventually, the whole world. Hauberk asks if that includes Hildred's own prosperity and happiness, which of course it does. But Hildred finds the tone in which Hauberk asks to be infuriating. But Hauberk goes on. He is interested in why Hildred hasn't gone back to all the activities he used to love, like hiking or exploring or riding. In Hauberk's mind, Hildred spends too much time holed up with his books. And Hildred explains that he doesn't like writing anymore anyway since the fall. And he really doesn't like this line of questioning. So he steers the conversation back to Mr. Wilde. Hallberg wants him to, to put the books away and go hiking and fishing in Maine. And I have to say that this deep into the semester, this sounds like a really good idea uh, to me. I really love this conversation that they have, because even if we believe all this business about the King in Yellow and Carcosa, right, even if we believe that Hildred really is in contact with some supernatural power that is going to make him some kind of ruler here on Earth, he's still being delusional. He is lying to himself about his motives. And he gets really upset when Hauberk points that out through his tone, when Hauberk indicates that he understands that although Hildred is using all of this language of uh, self-sacrifice, as if he's he's going to do all of this work for the good of other people, it's really about his own aggrandizement. And of course, we know that deep down that this is very much about his unhealthy fixation on on Constance, right? That he wants to possess her in some way. And that that's really what's driving his motives. And if we believe that all of this stuff is only in his head, then it's also driving his delusion about that as well. Right. Hauberk here sees right through Hildred and has, I think, some real insights to Hildred's character. And it's always worth, I think, as you point out, Glenn here, really looking at how Hauberk is responding to Hildred to get a sense of firm ground on where to stand in this story. Hauberg has another complaint here about Mr. Wilde. Wilde has nailed a sign over the hall door that reads, Mr. Wilde, repairer of reputations. Third bell. Hildred overhears the whispers of two lovers from Louis and Constance, and he knows that the time has now come, really, to speak of the important matters with Louis. And that is the end of chapter two in the edition that I'm using. And what's going to drive this transition from act two to act three is that in this little walk they've gone to take by the river, Hildred has realized that Hauberk is skeptical and suspicious and even dismissive of him. And he has also learned definitively that it's not just some little crush, some maybe little flirtation between Constance and Louis, but that they are calling each other sweetheart, that they are in fact engaged in some kind of a romance. And the reason that's the act break here is because that's going to drive what happens next. And as we've said, it's not going to be good. 
Well, chapter three now opens in early May, which is probably about a month or so after our uh, the, the action of the last chapter. Hildred is standing in front of the mirror, wearing his crown, remembering, maybe fondly, maybe not, the scream of Camilla and the awful words echoing through the dim streets of Carcosa. These are the final lines of Act One of The King in Yellow that are echoing in his brain. He thinks of Mr. Wilde's face, torn and scratched by the cat, and of his rightful ambition to ascend to the throne. He ignores the sound of the safe alarm going off when it's time to return the diadem to the safe, and continues to stand, staring at himself in the mirror. But suddenly, there are two faces in the mirror, and Hildred grabs a knife to confront the person behind him. But he is quickly disarmed by Louis, who has arrived. Louis asks Hildred if he is ill. Louis instructs Hildred to put away the brass crown and theatrical tinsel that he is wearing. Louis takes the diadem off of Hildred's head and tosses it in the air and catches it. And he remarks that this piece of junk basically can only be worth 50 cents, if anything. Louis then asks Hildred what the diadem is for and really why he's wearing it, but Hildred doesn't answer. Rather, he asks where Louis has been. Louis has been jumping mud creeks in Jersey, and it's dirty, and he would like a drink of brandy. And here we see that brandy coming back into play. I mean, it's the 19th century. Brandy's medicinal in this world. (laughs) Right. Well, Hildred only has terrible brandy on hand, and Louis remarks that it's really really bad brandy and he should have better brandy. Um, But very quickly, their conversation moves on to the King in Yellow. We learn a little bit about Hildred's books on his shelf. They're almost all about Napoleon, though the other book that he has is the King in Yellow. Hildred asks Louis if he has read it, and Louis hasn't, and he doesn't have anything good to say about the book. The rumor is that the author shot himself after reading it, but Hildred thinks the author is still alive. No one knows for sure, but Hildred maintains that the book contains great truths, truths which drive people mad, Louis says. And it is on this reputation that this book drives people mad that Louis will never read it. He's not curious about the contents of this play. In any event, Louis has come to tell Hildred that he is to be married to Constance. This all came together during the walk they were all taking together. Louis and Constance initially planned for a September wedding, but his regiment was just called up to move to San Francisco, and so they're going to be married tomorrow, and he wants Hildred to be his best man. And this thought sends Hildred's nerves on edge. But Hildred does agree to be Louis's best man, but he has one thing to ask of Louis. He wants Louis to meet him at midnight in Washington Park. Initially, Louis kind of dismisses this mad claim. But then he assents to the plan, and Louis leaves to go visit Constance, and Hildred waits for a few minutes so that he too can leave to visit Mr. Wilde without being seen. Wow, this, this scene is serious. It's, it's really intense. So just to be clear about what's going on here with the business of the crown and the safe, Hildred Castain, our narrator and our protagonist, believes that he is 
withdrawing, that he is removing a a precious metal and gemstone encrusted crown from a super secure, high tech, time alarmed safe, and that it, this is his daily ritual to put it on in anticipation of the time when he is in fact the ruler of the world, the the, the agent of the king in yellow here on Earth. But that is not what cousin Louis sees. Cousin Louis sees a crown that is made of tinsel, uh, of aluminum foil, basically, and that this is something that Hildred keeps in a what he calls a biscuit box, which is a, just a box of cookies. Okay, so this is a, a child's uh, toy, a, a sort of Burger King crown, and he's actually just keeping it in like a, a, a box of vanilla wafers or something like that. And of course, because this is a story that Hildred is writing down, it is not clear necessarily to us that Louis's perspective is objectively true. This might be something that Hildred is recording here because he wants us, his audience, to understand that how dismissive Louis is of him, that he doesn't even take seriously the fact that he has this crown and that he has this safe in his room. I'm trying to be neutral about my assessment of what's real and what's not here at this point, because it is something that's up in the air. Uh, there is also in this passage, there's a great line in the description of this crown. Chambers writes, the diamonds flashed fire as I turned to the mirror, and the heavy beaten gold burned like a halo about my head. And I think that this use of halo here underscores Hildred's delusions, right? It's not just that he thinks he is the rightful ruler of the world. He also thinks that he's virtuous, right? He thinks that he's a morally good person, even though he's constantly thinking about murdering people. He's always thinking about murdering Dr. Archer. He doesn't ever come outright and say that he wants to murder his cousin, but he has plans for him. And he has plans for Hauberk and Constance as well. And this is plans in the kind of Bond villain use of the word plans. And he's not a morally good person. And I think this description here also, I think, really contrasts nicely with Louis's phrase of theatrical tinsel, right? It's really uh, used here uh, with deft skill by Chambers to emphasize the distinction or the, the, the tension between whether or not it's Louis's or Hildred's perspective on this that is objectively true. Things are about to get a whole lot more crazy, though, in this story. We are really kicking into high gear in the third act. Hildred has gone to visit Mr. Wilde, and he finds Mr. Wilde laying on the floor of his apartment. Blood is dripped all over the carpet, and there's evidence of a struggle. And Mr. Wilde has a a little complaint here about the cursed cat that attacked him while he slept. And it's clear that the cat has like gone for his throat. Hildred thinks this business with the cat has just gone too far. So he goes to the kitchen to find a hatchet where you keep hatchets, I suppose. And he goes around the rooms of the apartment searching for the cat in order to kill it. But the cat is nowhere to be found. And when he returns to the main living area, Mr. Wilde is back on his chair and he's cleaned up after the most recent cat attack. He's washed his face and put on a clean shirt. I don't know how big this apartment is, but that's a lot to happen in the time you're searching to kill a cat with a hatchet. I think this is maybe a little evidence of some lost time or we're missing some pieces of Hildred's experience, which which happens quite a, quite a bit later, uh, as we see unnarrated events told to us after the fact in a few pages. Mr. Wilde, though, does not want Hildred to kill this cat. He has an odd fondness for it. It's almost like a, a familiar. It's... It's 
there's a lot of demonic imagery surrounding the cat and that this cat feels like a, a daemon, a familiar, a witch is familiar. They have a, a codependent abusive relationship with each other and, and he doesn't, he needs it. He's dependent on that relationship. Yeah. It's creepy and strange. Wild now is just reading from the ledger, the names of people who have come to have their reputation repaired and the amount of money they're paying to have it done. And Hildred is once again reading from the Imperial Dynasty of America. This is like a crazy person's club, basically. These two guys are both connected to one another in a strange way. They're the only people who will listen to one another's mad delusions, it feels like. One person keeps a ledger of names and dollar amounts next to it, and the other person is obsessed with their royal heritage. Yeah, they're certainly feeding each other's delusions. It's still not clear to me that they really are are inhabiting the the same delusion. Uh, though we'll we'll get some more about that here coming up. But yeah, they they need they need some kind of outside influence here. This is not good. These people should not have ever been released back into society without some kind of family unit or some kind of community care system uh, to prevent exactly this sort of thing from happening. You know, one might go so far as to suggest that uh, euthanasia clinics might not have been where the government should have put its money. Maybe mental health clinics. Maybe. We'll, we'll maybe dig into that in our discussion. Well, it gets worse. Wild now calls a man out from the bedroom. And even though Hildred claims he just searched the house with a hatchet, he didn't notice anybody else in the apartment. The man's name is Vance. And Vance throws himself before Hildred asking for forgiveness and for Hildred to save him from maybe the King in Yellow, maybe Mr. Wild, But he's clearly been driven mad by the King in Yellow. And Mr. Wild here chokes Vance to silence him and throws him on the ground. Here, Mr. Wild reads from his book about Vance. Osgood Oswald Vance, called April 28th. He has had his reputation damaged and has retained Wild for $1,500. And somehow this puts Vance in Wild's debt. And Mr. Wild gives Vance a mission. First, though, he makes Wilde listen to the complete reading of the Imperial History of America. And part of the point of that is to impress on Vance Hildred Castain's royal lineage. Hildred is, as we know, the cousin of the king. But Hildred should be the king. And Hildred steps in to explain to Vance why he would make a better king than Louis. Louis must be exiled or killed in order to to make this happen. If Louis marries the daughter of the Marquis of Avonshire, everything will be worse because the true King of America will now be married to a British aristocrat. And Hildred and Wilde have bigger plans for this country. They're prepared to bring the country to its knees before the pallid mask and serve the King in yellow. Of course, all of this is very distressing to Vance. Uh, and, and he's, really kept prisoner there as Wild continues to scheme and plot. Wild draws a map of Hauberk's store and rooms and writes a writ of execution, which Hildred now signs as Hildred Rex. It is his first official order as king. And here Mr. Wild gives Vance a brand new knife, along with the plans and the orders and the writ of execution, and allows him to leave. 
Just to be perfectly clear here, Hildred and Mr. Wilde want Vance to kill Hauberk with this knife, and and maybe Constance too, though my sense right now is that Constance is the real object of Hildred's actions, that he wants to possess her, not to, to kill her. This is about getting rid of the, the obstacles that are in the way of that. I want to I wanna spend a little bit of time here too, just talking about the the names that we get from Carcosa and and the hints about the history of the imperial dynasty of America. And and Chambers really builds his speculative world here by suggestion rather than by description or explanation. And we just get some phrases and we get some some names. And I'll just give some examples of them. So this the scene is not just that Mr. Wilde is is reading the this manuscript on the Imperial Dynasty of America. He's also using several volumes on heraldry in order to substantiate the result of his researches. And Chambers writes, he mentioned the establishment of the dynasty in Carcosa, the lakes which connected Haster, Aldebaran, and the mystery of the Hyades. He spoke of Casilda and Camilla, and sounded the cloudy depths of Deme and the lake of Hali. The scalloped tatters of the king in yellow must hide Etil forever, he muttered. But I do not believe Vance heard him. Uh, then, by degrees, he led Vance al- along the ramifications of the imperial family to Oates and Thali, from Nautalba and Phantom of Truth to Aldones, and then toss. And 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 this goes on for quite a while uh, until he begins the wonderful story of the last king. And all all of this really works to suggest a tale as old as time, right? This idea of a lost dynasty just waiting to be restored to its rightful position, which will then usher in a new era of prosperity for everyone, right? This is King Arthur. It's Frederick Barbarossa. Uh, It's even Napoleon who is lurking in the background of this story and is still actually kind of lurking in the background of the real 1890s, in which France only very recently has has become a republic after the uh, overthrow of the last member of the Napoleonic dynasty. And, and many people in France and around the world were still hoping for the return of the Napoleonic dynasty to set things right. So all of that is working here in what can kind of amount to just a dizzying and maybe a little bit meaningless uh, list of, of names here in, in Chambers's technique. One thing, of course, that adds to the madness of all of this is that America has never had ruling families in charge of the country, at least explicitly. You get the sense that Hildred hangs around Mr. Wilde's apartment and neither of them are doing anything for a little while, uh, which is strange. But eventually Hildred leaves Mr. Wilde, who is smiling at him in the darkness. Hildred hasn't eaten anything since breakfast, but he's not hungry, though he does see a half-starved creature approach him outside the lethal chamber, and Hildred is compelled to give this person some money. And about an hour later, as Hildred is just wandering around, waiting for midnight, he is approached by another such outcast, and Hildred does not have money to offer this man, but he does give him the yellow sign. Hildred continues to wander around and eventually finds himself... Uh, at the barracks or or Louis's apartment house, it is now time to meet with Louis, and the two men go to the park. Louis asks what he can do for Hildred, and Hildred only wants Louis to read the Imperial Dynasty of America, and even though it might seem crazy, he must promise to read it seriously and engage with it soberly, and Hildred will explain all after Louis is finished reading. Louis finds the document to be rubbish based on his expressions, but he looks bored by it. And when he finishes reading, Hildred hands Louis a scroll 
marked with the yellow sign. Hildred is ready to explain everything. Yeah, this scene with Hildred begging Louis to read the manuscript in his notes, this really resonated with me. The the expressions on Louis's face and his kind of sighs while he's being forced to do this. It's basically the exact plot of every time I ask someone to read a draft of a story I'm working on. It was a bit like looking in a dark mirror here. <laughs> right. You never want to be present when somebody's reading your work, especially an early draft. Right. And being watched by someone while you are reading their work is a real weird feeling it's a this is a bizarre experience for everyone involved well now that i've i've hijacked this for my my own therapeutic purposes uh, we're very near to the end of this story here so take us home brandon hildred is now going to let us know what's been going on in the background that he hasn't narrated to us so far dr archer had uncovered the secret of hildred's divine right based on the imperial succession it is he who schemed to take it all away from hildred using Hildred's fall from the horse as an excuse to either poison him or drive him mad. But Hildred made a final visit to Dr. Archer last night. There are three people, though, still standing in the way of Hildred's suggestion. And this is obviously meant to imply that Dr. Archer has been murdered, but it's not explicit in this sentence. The three people standing in, in the way of Hildred are Louis, Hauberk, and Constance. And when Louis hears this, he springs to his feet. Hildred explains that Louis must renounce the crown. And Louis immediately agrees to do so. And he says, let's just take you back home, Hildred. But Hildred then continues. He forbids Louis to marry. If Louis renounces the crown and agrees not to marry Constance and go into exile, he won't be forced to have Louis killed. Hildred has already killed Dr. Archer by opening his throat, and here it's explicit. Louis is stunned by these exclamations. Hildred sees a man running up the fourth up Fourth Street at, to enter the lethal chamber, and he recognizes that man as Vance, and surmises that Vance has completed his mission of killing Hauberk and Constance. Hildred is free, and now he can tell Louis to just go away. Louis can never marry Constance now anyway, and if he marries anyone in exile, Hildred will be forced to pay him a visit, as he paid Dr. Archer a visit. Hildred tries to run away, and Louis chases after him and really tries to arrest him. Hildred returns to Mr. Wilde's apartment. The door is open, and Hildred exclaims, It is done! It is done! Let the nations rise and look upon their king! But Wilde is nowhere to be found. This is not really something that concerns Hildred anyway. He takes the diadem and robe, which he has a robe now, from their places, and is finally content to be the king. He knows the mystery of the Hyades, and his mind has sounded the depths of the Lake of Hali. But this moment of victory is short-lived. He hears a groan coming from the passageway in the apartment. The cat runs by, and Hildred throws his knife at it killing it, though he doesn't witness the death of the cat at all. He just knows he's killed it. He lights a lamp and goes into the bedroom and finds Mr. Wilde on the floor with his throat torn open. Mr. Wilde is not quite dead, though. He makes a sound like a death rattle and spreads his mouth in what appears to be a ghastly smile. And this gives Hildred a great moment of hope right before Wilde dies, along with Hildred's every hope and ambition, and even the crown he hopes to hold. He screams in rage. 
And as he is screaming, the policemen come to arrest him. He fights them off, biting at them with his sharp teeth. But eventually he is subdued. And now he sees Hauberk, Constance, and his cousin Louis enter the room. Hildred shrieks at them. Ah, I see it now. You have seized the throne and the empire. Woe, woe to you who are crowned with the crown of the king in yellow. And all we are left with as readers is an editor's note. Mr. Castain died in the asylum for the criminally insane. And it is here that our story ends. This was a real doozy of a story and a real serious business ending. I, I was pretty shocked when we get the revelation uh, as Vance goes into the lethal chamber that uh, that the order that Hildred and Mr. Wilde had given him included the killing of Constance. Up to this point, I, I really thought that that Hildred wanted her to possess her, but it becomes clear here at the end that he's not interested in having nice things. What he is interested in doing is avenging himself on people who have slighted him for like for anything, for the smallest thing. And and that's a, a, a real uh, a real scary and a real twisted way of 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 living in the in the world. Uh, this, this story makes me just you know need to kind of go outside, see some sunshine, uh, go on a hiking and fishing trip to Maine to remember that it is in fact a nice world to live in. And there's a lot more to to say about this story, a lot more work really that we have to do to to figure out what is going on, what this story is is all about, and its its place and its role in uh, the history of American literature and the history of weird fiction. We're going to take up all of that in our next episode, our discussion episode, and so that's going to do it here today. I'm Glenn McDorman. I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects as always at ClayTempleMedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple Forum and, and let us know what you thought of this story. Let us know how you reacted to the repairer of reputations, how you reacted to this speculative world that Chambers has built. And make sure you check us out on Patreon. We'd love to have you participate in our story selection process and your support is, is hugely important for us uh, continuing to talk even more about stories that you love. Yes, we really do appreciate your support. Next time, Glenn, as you said, we'll be back with a discussion of this story. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>